Welcome everyone, this is Carlos. Today I have a great friend in the office, Katie Turner, CEO of Multiple. We'll hear all about Multiple a little later, but I want to start off with her background, and her background's actually super interesting. She was an academic in some ways. She had studied theology in college, and of course, with that comes kind of the challenge of what to do after that, if, if not uh, go and pursuing that degree in a church. And I guess in many ways, We'd love to explore how you ended up being the marketing guru you are today. So thanks for joining us, Katie. Pleasure. I had originally thought I would be become an academic. And then I think after having a really good time at university, I decided that possibly wasn't the path for me. I then thought, well, what do I love? I love reading books. Uh, so decided to go into publishing. And I was working um, as assistant to the managing partner of a publishing firm who published a variety of titles across the B2B space. Great introduction actually into a small business and how every facet of a small business operates from sales through accounting, through printing. However, it became quite apparent to me quite quickly that that uh, industry, i.e. the publishing and printing industry, was didn't have the rosiest of futures. So you decided to move to Orange from there? Yeah, I did. I yes, was kind of interested in what was happening in technology and particularly in the mobile space at that time. And Orange was an incredibly attractive brand at that point in time. They were doing stuff from a brand perspective, which was incredibly innovative. The older listeners amongst you may remember the Futures Bright, the Futures Orange. That was the, the campaign that they launched with. And in terms of the way that they thought about communications, ad creative... They were just doing stuff that I think pretty much nobody else had, was doing at that point in the market, not just across technology or mobile, but across many, many areas of, of products and services. So within that group, what was the functions that you had? I know that you ended up eventually in, in the international group, but what, walk us through kind of the types of projects that you personally had. When I started, I was focused on strategic relationships. So I joined a department that looked after that and it was really about increasing audience getting more products and services into the hands of people through partnerships I, from there I moved into business solutions so looking at how uh, Orange could build products and services out for a business audience so everything through from SME through to multinational initially I worked in the UK business on that in that area so looking at how we could deliver great products and services to both um, smaller businesses and bigger businesses in the UK market and one of the best examples there would be BlackBerry so when Orange launched BlackBerry in the UK market that was a project that I led. To get a feeling for how startups and corporates work with these kinds of initiatives what was that BlackBerry launch like? Was it one where the partner brand in this case BlackBerry dominated the marketing that you were allowed to use within Orange or how did you negotiate that? How did two brands collaborate in that case? Because in, in effect, it is a collaboration of brands and you see startups doing all sorts of collaborations these days. Yeah, I um, they're an interesting example because Research in Motion, the, the creators of BlackBerry, are at, certainly were at that time incredibly, incredibly focused on delivering their solution to market in a way that was very consistent across every distribution channel. And ultimately, I guess they saw the mobile operator, in this case Orange, as the distribution channel. So they had a real cookie cutter approach to activating those distribution channels, if you like. The legals were insane. I recall negotiating the contracts with them for, for to enable us to, to sell the product. It was an incredibly in-depth process, very kind of long-winded and complicated. 
and there were definitely certain constraints in terms of the way that we could communicate about the product. I would say we had some kind of free reign in terms of how we thought about pricing and tariffs, but certainly they were a little prescriptive, I would say, about, about how they wanted the product to be represented and talked about. I mean, kind of relating that back to startups, I think, you know, you often find the same challenge in a startup, particularly when you're working with a larger partner. And it strikes me that, you know, education is often required actually on the part of corporates to, to help them understand how to work with startups but equally startups need to understand how to work with corporates whether that's communication around a product or you know the t's and c's that are going to make that relationship work well like payment terms for example and it sounds to me like not only did you deal with brands like like rim but also with brands from different parts of the world like in poland where potentially there are some good stories there around how to deal with rebranding an acquired company yeah so as you mentioned I worked for a while in Poland this was post the acquisition of one of the national mobile networks there that Orange had undertaken and Orange it was incredibly incredibly brand centric during this period of time so I joined in 99 and spent the next kind of eight years or so working there the the brand was everything to Orange as a business so Again, you know, they did really interesting, innovative stuff, which meant that they didn't lead on price and they didn't lead on device when they were putting their story out into the world. So we acquired a network in Poland. The network in Poland was a really good example of a company which I would say was kind of sending a very commoditized message to market. They talked a lot about price and particularly low price. They talked a lot about the devices that they were selling and again associating those with price points. And when we would rebrand a network, we would send a kind of crack team in to go and work with the resources from the the historical business and to try and educate them about the brand thinking and how to take the, the product and take the orange brand to market. And I think one of the biggest learnings for me from that experience was when you try to tell a story which is very focused on price, it's just kind of a race to the bottom. And actually thinking about um, really smart ways to take a brand story to market to build awareness can often be more important than just pushing a very functional message about your product. Looking back over the years of having worked in a startup in a VC fund, which we'll cover in a bit, the the experience that you had at Orange, um, in some ways, could could be considered to have changed quite a bit in the landscape of today. When you look back at those years and you put that in into context, what are the timeless elements about those lessons of branding? What are the elements of, of the things you picked up in Orange that you'd say are still timeless to this day? And which ones are no longer as applicable for brands starting to launch out and considering how to differentiate themselves from competitors? I think that I guess the central lesson for me was that understanding why you exist as a business is everything. If you can understand the why if you can understand why you built the business why you get out of bed in the morning and you can articulate that really clearly and consistently that provides you with real core strength Um, and that's very much how we tend to think about branding in the work that I do now with my business which I'm sure we'll come on to so to me that is a universal lesson of branding I think what's changed with respect to a business like Orange is the model and the distribution channels Mm -hmm. and the way that you take brand out um, across different distribution channels the world today is hugely hugely different from the world that Orange tried to build its brand 
originally, which was effectively the walled garden mm. operator model. And that, you know, everything's changed now. The game is completely different in mm. terms of, you know, the proliferation of different channels. And um, I guess in the context of a business like Orange, the in a way, the lack of ownership they have over a lot of the channels where their brand may be seen or experienced. So do you think that there is a problem with the why question with large companies such that maybe there's only a limited time post when a founder leaves or when they hit a certain number of employees where that why question just gets so fractured that it becomes hard for them to to actually synchronize across different channels and different strategies? No, I think if it's done well, it's highly effective and it doesn't matter about the size of business. Uh, Take Google and Alphabet as a really good example here. Now, absolutely, you would consider that business a corporate, a multinational entity, by no means any longer a, a startup. Google is an example of a business that has really codified its why. So they talk about um, making the world's information accessible and searchable. And if you think about the products that sit under that core mission, it doesn't really say anything about AdWords. It doesn't say anything about PPC. It doesn't say anything about glasses, you know, yet everything that they do can be fitted, fit under that purpose. And actually one of the reasons that they reorganized into Alphabet and then the business divisions within Google underneath that was so that they could absolutely codify that purpose at their core. Another example, I think, of a a business that understands its why absolutely explicitly and pulls that through all of its branding is Nike. So Nike's um, purpose is, um, you know, we exist to inspire uh, and innovate for every athlete in the world, asterisk, if you have a body, you're an athlete. And you can see so clearly how that translates into their strap line of just do it and a lot of the product lines and, you know, the narratives that they take to market. So absolutely, it can still be done well, regardless of the size of the organization. When you look at that question, why? There's several books written now about it. You know, there's a Simon Sinek's thing, Start With Why. And it sounds so simple. I guess to some extent, multiple wouldn't exist if it were so simple that people could figure it out. But for those of that are listening that don't have necessarily the resources to, to sort of bring in somebody with more experience to help them guide that, what are the fundamentals of identifying the why within an organization? Maybe not an organization of one, but perhaps an organization of two or more. How, how does one go about that process? Because it would seem to me that you can end up in this endless debate that starts sounding quite naff with all sorts of somewhat trite, altruistic statements that really don't you know, succinctly summarize what it is that the, the company does. The simplest way to get to that understanding, I think, is to ask questions and ask questions around why, you know, what the origination myth of the business is, which customers you intend to target, what the products and services look like, how the founders met, what the business model is, what the competition is doing. There's a series of questions that you can take yourself through in effect. And if you actually set that stuff out, you'll start to see themes or patterns. Those things will naturally, naturally emerge. And I think, you know, a lot of times it's quite challenging for founding teams or exec teams to, you know, take that step back and just be a little philosophical about, you know, you get very ingrained in the day to day. So 
actually just taking a step back and asking yourself some of those fundamental questions. You know, the hope is you'll see some patterns emerge, you'll see a consistent theme which appears across a lot of your answers to those questions and that should help you move you somewhere closer to, to understanding your why. So the crack team that you guys would send as part of Orange to like brands that you would perhaps acquire, was it a lot of that soul searching of that why soul searching that they would do or was it more of sort of, hey, we already have this corporate wide why, now you're going to adopt it. And I guess if I could amend that question to how corporates purchase startups today mm-hmm. is, you know, you're seeing some companies do that really well, letting them keep their identity um, whereas other ones probably do a little less well, but maybe you can comment on, on that, how, how these things integrate, how do you transfer culture from one group that was creating the culture and another one who's adopting it? It's really difficult, I think is the short answer. So in the context that I saw it when I was working at Orange, um, it was definitely the latter um, thing that you described, i.e. we understood the why and our role was to go in to this new asset and try and effectively inculcate them with our thinking about brand and our thinking about narrative and our thinking about culture. And oftentimes we would see quite a lot of resistance because, you know, I gave you the example previously of the network in Poland, they were so used to thinking in that what I would describe as quite commoditized fashion about price and device and being, you know, leading the story based on those things, that to then shift them away from this mindset um, towards a mindset which was much more about, you know, kind of a big, a purpose-driven brand was really, really challenging. And, you know, the reason that the kind of crack team was sent in was to spend months with those people through workshops, through communication, through re-education to try and effectively house them within that new framework, if you like. But by no means is it easy. And to, you know, to answer your point about M&A within the corporate startup context, again, I think it's really, really challenging. Retrofitting culture to a new asset is one of the hardest things that you can do. And actually, you know, As they often say, the easiest way to change culture is to change people, you know, for one thing. Um, I think that some acquirers look for businesses that have really strong culture fit. And in that scenario, it's, it's far more straightforward. If that's important to you and important to your acquisition strategy, you go out and look mm. for businesses that have cultural fit. Sometimes, however, of course, that's just not the case. Companies yeah. are acquired for, you know, the great people within their teams or for the great technology that they have and culture fit may not even be a question and I think you know in that scenario it's more challenging the simplest answer I guess really is you know how do you um, take people with you and at the very basic level communication is is the way to do that mm. it's a probably a good transition to talk about how you then moved to investing in people you know you and I met when you were at Eden Ventures and Eden Ventures was one of the original investors in Seedcamp as well and You know, we were both peers in the sense that I was at a different fund and, and our jobs were investing in people. And then it'd be interesting to hear how you mapped what you learned about that, that sort of why with now to the, the people and the who, if you will. I guess just to talk a little bit further about Orange, I've talked a lot about brand, but culture and values were absolutely axiomatically important in that organization in terms of the way that it functioned. So people were hired against a strong kind of cultural 
footprint, if you like, or a value set. And they were, um, once they're inside the business, they were assessed against that value set. Um, there were a number of ways in which the values were used to try and manifest certain behaviour in the organisation. And so I guess, in a way, I had that very strong grounding from, you know, the start of the time that I worked there in the, the importance of values and the importance of culture fit. Then having left Orange and joining, as you said, Eden Ventures. Again, I fundamentally agree with you. VC is a people-driven business. And when you undertake a relationship with an investor as an entrepreneur or vice versa, you know, when you're looking as a VC to, to invest in a company or a founder, to my mind, like relationship fit and culture fit is one of the most important aspects of doing that deal. It's a long, long-term relationship. This is a, you know, often used cliche, but it is a little bit like a marriage. So, understanding whether culture fit or understanding culture fit and common values as part of the process for making that investment I think was something that implicitly was definitely informed by the you know the the background I'd had at Orange and the again the importance of that stuff within that organization. But did you look at investments on the merit that the team had a strong culture and as a consequence their ability to hire other people that would fit into that culture was well-rounded and, and, and well-defined or did you look at it more in terms of this company's value set or why is in line with Eden's partnership and as a consequence it feels compatible which one of those two was it I think it was probably the former typically like looking at teams and figuring out you know are these guys or girls going to be able to hire rock stars are they going to be able to scale out a team effectively are they going to be credible managers as the business grows are they going to make the right decisions around people I think typically it was more that you know that was probably priority number one priority number two was of course are they a good fit for us as a um, you know as an investment team and will we have a fruitful relationship going forwards will they listen and I think that you know, that was so often talked about, you know, will this particular founder listen? Will they take a, you know, feedback on board? Because investing at the early stage, um, as we were as a fund, and as you know, actually you're very active and hands-on. So working with somebody that you felt you could have a dialogue was certainly important. But I guess probably, again, you know, if I was to prioritise the idea that you were investing in people that could build out credible teams inside that business was probably the the leading factor. Hmm. Which is interesting because you then ended up joining a startup. Mm-hmm. You went from, you know, working in a corporate and seeing how that was like, then becoming an investor, and then you became a VP of marketing for Video Plaza. Walk us through that sort of transition. Obviously, you had now seen what an investor looks for in a company, and I'd love to hear how the salt water hit the non-salt water, if you will. So I loved being a VC, you know, it's a hugely fun job, you get to meet insanely smart people all day long with wonderful, wonderful ideas and, you know, have the the opportunity to work with some, some amazingly awesome people. However, I guess after three and a half years in that role, I felt like I wanted to build something again very simply. I was used to building stuff, you know, from my time with Orange and I had itchy feet about doing that. The reason that I chose to work uh, with Video Plaza was twofold and actually links back to a lot of the stuff we've just talked about. One, I felt like as a business, they had a really strong 
appreciation for brand. Not that they were necessarily executing that well at that time around it, but they fundamentally knew it was important and it was something that they wanted to invest in and put resources towards. I suspect in a part that comes, you know, Video Plaza was a Swedish business. They had certainly the very typically Swedish appreciation for aesthetics and the importance of design but beyond that also the importance of culture and the importance of purpose that attracted me to the business secondly i loved the founding team how many people were there when you joined around 2025 but i really really loved the founding team uh, the guys that founded that business were just a really exciting interesting bunch of people to me i guess thirdly at that point in time and again you know this is going back a few years there was some really fascinating stuff happening in the way that content was being consumed in effect in the way that, you know, the, the TV model would have to evolve and change. And so I think we were also attacking an industry, namely content, broadcast, um, publishing uh, and advertising at a time when there was so much change happening, which made it a, a, an exciting place to be. So with Video Plaza, you know, you shared that you really loved the culture and rationale behind what brought them together. And you, you thought that it was a good mix to execute that. And you came in early enough in the journey to see it scale. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the process of that company scaling vis-a-vis what you knew as a VC and what you knew from within Orange? What were the key elements of scaling that, that you look back now that you would give advice on And how did you manage to map the cultural expansion and not have it become diluted once it became like a company of nearly 100? The experience that I'd had as a VC, I felt would be really relevant to me when I went into that business. But actually, it was the experience I'd had at Orange that was the most relevant. And I found myself constantly referring back to things that I'd done years and years before in my roles at Orange. And that was because when you see how business operates at scale and at at kind of industrial level, that thinking is actually really powerful when applied to the startup context. And I'm often a little frustrated when I hear uh, startup people say they would never work for a corporate because actually every startup's trying to be a corporate and having experience of a business of that size and scale is incredibly, incredibly instructive. So my experience at Orange was definitely far more relevant. And I guess the thing that I would pick out that was super helpful um, and that I continue to apply throughout the journey of scaling with Video Plaza is consistency and finding how to codify what you're doing so that you can roll it out across markets or across teams. When I'm talking about consistency, I mean things like consistency of purpose, consistency of brand thinking, consistency of value set and making sure that everybody's on the same page with that stuff, consistency and frequency of internal communications. By the time that I left Video Plaza, we were in about 12, 13 countries. So we had people across three different continents and getting together was really important, bringing the team together as a whole, but also ensuring that that consistency of message, both internal and external, went right across the business, I guess, was one of the most important facets of scaling for me. So how do companies do that? Because the temptation is, and we have this within Seedcamp, everybody just puts their head down and works on the bit that they need to work on. Then there's this overhead, let's call it culture overhead or admin overhead, where you're trying to synchronize everybody around 
you know, do we all have the same vision? Do we all have the same culture? Oh, new guy just showed up. We need to do that for him as well. And then, oh my goodness, it's going to take about three months to get him up to speed. How do you, how did you guys manage to do that without, you know, effectively spending 20% of your time just on, on sort of these kinds of admin logistics? Well, I think the reality is I did spend a lot of my time on those admin and logistics and actually it's critical to do so. So to give an example, we would do an away day at least once a year to get everybody together so that everybody could um, talk about the vision so that we could reassert the values and make sure everybody was on the same page and actually it was incredibly fruitful so yes there was an overhead in doing that but taking that day out or two days out of the business and the day-to-day reinforced relationships made sure that everybody knew each other inside the business made sure that everybody's um, understanding of the value set and you know the vision was coherent and consistent it's worth the investment it just is worth the investment investing in the time to think about brand or cultural growth it's just worth it the businesses that do that succeed up to now we've been talking a lot about things that are part of the dna of a company the internal operations if you will we haven't yet really spoken too much other than the orange poland example about how to materialize that in the form of a marketing campaign. So walk us through how you now think about taking and packaging all that internal stuff into a differentiated marketing strategy for any company in a way that really resonates with the market, stands out, and isn't a violation of sort of the internal words at at the compromise of just trying to stand out from your competitors? So I think there's a natural order of things or a hierarchy, if you like, which enables you to both build a brand and then, if you like, pull the red thread of that brand through into the way that you do marketing, the way that you articulate a message to your audiences. So we would always suggest that you have to start from the purpose, from the why, um, and go through um, that kind of question set that I was describing earlier, ask yourself those sorts of questions, try to understand the core theme that's emerging from those questions and then your why is probably somewhere around that core theme. Um, Once you've fixed the why, if you like, or that core purpose, then you can start to think about your positioning. And by positioning, when I talk about that, I mean where you exist in the world, the kind of place that you inhabit, where people are either going to love you or hate you. And so describing who you are, describing what you do, describing who you do it for, are, you know, kind of part form part of that articulation of your positioning. Once you have your purpose and your positioning well understood, then you start to build out your personality. And personality is the area that most branding is kind of thought of in the context of. So personality is your tone of voice, your posture, your visualization identity all of that stuff that is traditionally thought of as brand but actually that's just one component of the brand the brand is fundamentally about the positioning and the purpose as well and in fact brand is everything you make do say your pricing your algorithms your Mm. you know your investors your website everything is a manifestation of brand so taking a step back from that again I think if you can understand and articulate purpose your positioning in the world who you are what you do and then take that through into personality where you understand what your tone of voice should be, you understand how you build a great visual identity, 
that's really the cornerstone or the foundation of brand thinking. Mm. Once you have that in place, then you can kind of pull that through into, for example, a campaign. So, you know, let's say that within your business, being adventurous is really important. And one of your values is, you know, do something adventurous every day. An example of a behavior there within the business might be, you know, let's have board meetings on white water rafts, for example. And then you pull that adventurous tone of voice through into your campaign and into the campaign and the posture that you're using within your communications towards your customers. I think one of the things that I'm struggling with is whether or not this is just a time relevance marketing strategy. There was a guy that I was speaking to recently who was talking about this emergence of the authentic marketing because it's a period of maybe our self-awareness as a collective human race where in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's a self-actualization need. We're almost all there that that sort of first world level and for a lot of the products that these companies are proposing they're all of that sort where the best way to convert is somebody just getting to that top of that pyramid and if all the brands are effectively going after this authentic message it might very well be that's authentic measure but if you have five companies that are promoting an authentic adventurous experience with a personality that resonates with you you end up stuck again in this rut of non-differentiated authenticity and I'm wondering whether it's enough. Like, and, and it's maybe we're at the stage where there are so many brands that are doing it poorly that just having these three items really well done is sufficient. But is that sustainable long term, or what? What is kind of your view on how that is evolving? I would absolutely agree with the person you were speaking to with his analysis or their their analysis of where we are at this point in time, I think kind of conscious consumerism is definitely a factor. People do care much more about provenance um, or the ethics or what happened in the supply chain of the products and services that they're purchasing. So I would absolutely agree that I think that's really you know fundamental to building brand and marketing going forwards. A lot of businesses don't do this stuff well so if you do get it right there's an opportunity there but I would say that positioning and personality to an extent can shift right and products and services can shift purpose we would argue is the immovable object you know the the core strength the true north the thing that stays constant and if your purpose is different than another business's purpose then you are occupying to you know, different positions in the market. And yes, you know, your positioning and your personality can change over time, but hopefully your purpose doesn't. But because of the, think of it like this core strength where products and services and messaging can shift around that core purpose, I would argue that even if two businesses are pursuing an ethical approach to to what they do, their purpose may be quite radically different, which means that they can still differentiate through their personality, through their products and services. But again, I definitely think that, you know, I would absolutely concur with that, this being an overarching shift in the market towards this, you know, very conscious consumerism. After you were done with Video Plaza, you know, there was a, there was an interesting transition in your career to working at Tech City. In, in effect, kind of moving away from the, the sort of entrepreneurship corporate VC stack, walk us through what you did there. And, you know, uh, we had Jared here uh, not too long ago. And, you know, Tech City has been such a catalyst for the U- UK ecosystem. It'd be great to hear kind of your contribution as part of that. 
So my role there was CMO and I joined about three months after Gerard started as CEO. Um, funnily enough, Gerard and I had worked together at Orange many years previously. So we have a similar background, I guess, in a way in terms of brand thinking and culture thinking. I guess uh, there I was responsible for everything, brand, comms, PR, working with the different programs uh, the organisation was delivering to think about their product marketing or their narrative, overseeing all of the digital channels, website and stuff. So so pretty much everything that you can think of across the, the area of marketing. And that was was my role there. I guess in terms of my contribution, I think you know, when Gerard joined the organisation, Joanna Shields, who's a previous CEO, had done some great work to start building out the programmes and Gerard really continued um, that legacy of Joanna's. I think, you know, some of the, the most powerful stuff that the organisation did was working on things like the Tech Nation Visa Programme, um, you know, bringing into the country of great talent, the Upscale Programme and, and those sorts of things where, you know, one of the, the inherent challenges of Tech City is that you have incredibly limited resource, but, you know, intense level of kind of demand or pull for support across the ecosystem. And so you have to actually be very selective about how you deploy those resources. And I think Gerard's vision was always, if we can build out these programs further, then we can deliver both the direct benefit to the businesses involved in those programs, but we can also continue to deliver benefit at a macro level through the work that we do directly with government on policy. So you went from one organization that was stretched in for resources to the new one, Multiple, being CEO of effectively a new startup. Walk us through what Multiple does. We consider ourselves engineers of scale. We are a strategic consultancy business. We're typically working with growth stage, by which I mean kind of series A and beyond technology businesses, but also to an extent with funds and with corporates to help them engineer scale across the areas that we've talked about. So namely purpose and how you codify that through into brand. People, by which I mean both the people inside the business, the culture, building and codifying culture, building an employer brand, but also how you think about people outside your business. So um, namely telling a really compelling customer narrative, thinking about your value proposition messaging. And then the third area for us is um, kind of platforms, which is really about the systems and the processes, which mean that you're scalable. And you asked me this question earlier about, you know, my takeaways around scale. Consistency um, is definitely one thing. And you achieve consistency oftentimes through, you know, quite simply having a framework or a system, you know, that enables that consistency and enables scalability. To summarise, I guess, the kind of projects we typically working across in with our clients are brand-led, culture-led or growth. And it seems like it's a quite a, a nice way of uh, summarizing a lot of the work that you've done across all, all the companies. You know, it, it seems like each one of these elements are elements that you discovered as, as part of that journey. We always like to end with something that is, you know, more on the humor side of things. And um, I'm going to ask you three trick questions. First one is start over at 18, knowing everything you know now. What would you do differently? Goodness me, that's a really good question. Probably get into technology earlier and probably be better at doing technology in the sense of, you know, I'm a non-technologist in the technology world. And actually, I've always think that that served me quite well. I've often considered my role to be that of translator 
between technologists and you know the world outside but I I guess there's a part of me that thinks it would be really awesome to to kind of get code from you know a place of knowledge excellent what's something you used to strongly believe in that you now think you were fundamentally misguided about I guess that I used to think that a couple of things that are probably slightly interrelated that you know you can kind of exert control on the world and you know events and stuff like that and you know I used to see the world in a slightly more black and white way I guess as I get older I believe that life is deeply ambiguous and you know kind of tied to that point in my degree in theology when I was studying for my degree I definitely you know felt like you know religion was this kind of construct if you like that humanity had just created and again I would say my views about that um, at the point I am in my life now are more ambiguous so yeah I think you know the deep-seated ambiguity of life I guess. And what's one bad habit you're trying to get rid of? I think in a work context, um, I ha- I'm kind of making that mistake that I think a lot of founders, CEOs make, which is wanting to kind of have control over everything again. So I'm trying to take my hands off things. Excellent. Well, with that, thanks for joining us, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Until next time, guys. Bye.